Welcome to the first episode of A Life Through Books. Today I'm here with the writer Dave Shelton, who actually lived across from me as a child and who I've managed to reconnect with for this project. So it's very exciting, especially to have a local author for my first episode. Your debut novel, A Boy in a Bear in a Boat, is how I first came across your work. I think all the kids on the street probably read that book, but it was definitely a favorite in our household and clearly a favorite nationally as well when I was doing my research. So I'm really excited to be able to hear everything that led up to the writing of that book and everything that's come afterwards as well, including 13 Chairs, which I really enjoyed reading. And my brothers really enjoyed the detective cases too. And I've seen you have comics as well, which is amazing. I'd love to hear about the process of that as well. So thank you so much for coming to speak with me today. It's a great pleasure. So the first book that you remember from your childhood, the very start of your reading life, I suppose. I'm sure it's not the first book I either had read to me or read. The first book that I have a clear memory of from my childhood would be Wind in the Willows. Yeah. I think it was a library book, uh, Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. And I imagine that my dad had read at least some of it to me. Yeah. And I know it was a bit of a favourite of his. The way I remember it is that I was at least trying to read some of it on my own. And maybe I was a bit young for it. But I have a reasonably clear memory, rightly or wrongly, of the chapter called The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, where it all all goes a bit weird. It's all been nice, funny animal stuff. And then there's this kind of almost psychedelic interlude (laughs) with the god Pan. And I didn't get to the end. And it was because of this. I have a bit of a history of certain chapters of certain books stopping me. Yeah. But in this case, wrongly, I suspect. But yeah. I think it was just the wrong time in my life. So that's the first book I can remember from my childhood. Do you remember where you were reading these books when you were younger? The memory I have of Wind in the Willows is in the house I was born in. We lived in till I was seven or eight. So I'm going to guess that I was around about seven at the time and when we were there, I was sharing a bedroom with my younger brother. And there was a set of bunk beds on one side of the room. And there was a single bed, which I slept in. The memory I have is me lying face down on this single bed with this illustrated copy of Wind in the Willows. Not knowing at all what to make of it. That's this little kind of distorted Polaroid memory of that moment. Yeah. The other... Very early reading memory I have is the memory of reading before I could read. (laughs) So my family used to take holidays in a place called Sheringham on the North Norfolk coast. And we had a static caravan there. And we had just arrived and we were inside the caravan, but Mum and Dad were still bringing things in from the car and unpacking. But I was sat down at the caravan table with a comic and I was pestering my dad to to read me some of this comic. Yeah. And he said, well, I'm kind of busy here, you know. Yeah, not the time. <laughs> and he, he sat me down and he opened, opened it up and pointed at presumably the first story in and said, just look at the pictures and you, know, you can probably work it out for yourself. Yeah. And I kind of did. Yeah. And the memory I, I have of it is that I sat with it and looked at the pictures and I got some kind of story out of it. Probably not the one that had been written. Yeah. But I got a story from this sequence of pictures 
yeah. at the age of uh, three or four. And I've been obsessed with comics ever since. So it's all yeah. my dad's fault. There's something especially magical about pictures in children's books because they provide some of the meaning that some big words block out. And it's a shame that as you get older, there are less pictures in your books. My wife, Pam Smart, would know more about this than me. Yeah. She teaches on an MA in children's illustration. Oh, okay. But I believe it to be the case. There's been something of a prejudice in publishing against illustrating uh, texts for older children and indeed for adults. And that's slightly slackening. I think there's a slight growing awareness that actually illustrating for any age can be a good thing. Moving on to the next prompt, which is the first book that you remember studying in school. I think we must have read it as a class. Mm. Or possibly even had it read to us, Animal Farm by George Orwell. I certainly remember having to write something about it. Yeah. And the bit I particularly remember is, I think the horse is called Boxer. There's an element of something about Boxer that I thought, <laughs> oh, George, why did George Orwell make this decision? It was wrong yeah. of him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I knew better than George Orwell. And the other thing that that particular book reminds me of is it was taught to me and possibly read to me by Mrs. Ball. She was a particular English teacher for two or three years of my education yeah. and made a great impression on me. And yeah. we're ever so slightly back in touch these days. Yeah. I, I gave her a mention on the cover of a boy in a bear in a boat, and she came along to the launch party of oh, wow. 13 chairs. Teachers are really important, especially in reading with how influential they can be in steering you in a direction you wouldn't have thought of before. Reflecting on it later and thinking, well, I really wouldn't have gone down that route unless the teacher had suggested it. Anyway, I don't have that clear memory of the book. But I th the other thing about that would be it was probably the first time I'd read something that was allegorical. This is an allegory and this is what an allegory yeah. of. And now we're going to talk about the Russian Revolution. I was reading that when it was first published, the UK was still in its wartime alliance with the Soviet Union. And then as that dissolves and the Cold War starts developing, it then comes into its kind of prime. And that's when it becomes really successful, which is interesting. It said it was rejected by quite a few British and American publishers when it was first published. There just wasn't a place for it at the time. And then suddenly it was the thing to have because it was matching public opinion. It's very interesting. What is a book that you studied in high school? The one I can remember most clearly was Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Yeah, I can't say I hugely enjoyed uh, Dickens. There are elements of, oh, you can see you being paid by the word hitch. There's a court scene in London and the people in the public gallery there act as a mass of people. And there's also Madame Defarge and the rest of them observing the guillotining of people in Paris. But there's these almost sociological studies of how people act en masse yeah. that were really effective. And there were also little details that roughly 40 years on, the, the image of Madame Defarge knitting at the guillotine yeah. and the personal detail within the mob yeah. is very, very powerful. Yeah. What is a book that you read at a formative time in your life? The two biggest influences on my writing are mm -hmm. comics yeah. and Radio 4. Those are and both very good influences to have. So I think the formative reading experience I will give you is the comic 2000 AD 
which launched in 1907, the same year that Star Wars came out. Coincidentally, because there, were, there used to be a lot of British published comics on the newsagent shelves back in those days, you had a, quite a wide choice. Whatever was kind of in the popular culture, a comic would come out, it last a year or two. And then sport would be more popular than science fiction, so there'd be a new yeah. sports comic or whatever. <laughs> and your comic would merge with some other comic and then gradually kind of right. dissolve away. But right. 2018, they, they clearly thought, oh, if we're lucky, we might get two or three years out of it. So they, yeah. in 1977, they, they called it 2000 AD because clearly that was the far future and unimaginable. Yeah. I'd read all kinds of comics before that. Yeah. And I'd, I'd kind of resisted looking at it when it first came out. I was aware of it launching, and for some reason I thought it w- wouldn't be for me. And then about a year in, I read a copy almost ac- accidentally. I thought, oh, actually, that's quite good. It's not yeah. as bad as I expected. And then a while after that, I read a few more and then started buying it regularly. And it was the first comic where instead of reading it and then chucking it away, I yeah. read it and kept it, and then next yeah. week I bought it the next one on top yeah and i had a pile of them and then i had two piles of them and then I, by the time i left home to go to college there are a couple of suitcases for yeah. my parents place and eventually <laughs> when they moved house many years later they said are you taking these away or are you binning them and then i took them away and later gave them away to a good home and it's still going 2000 ad wow. and it's not about the past and nobody yeah. really thinks about it but that's just the way that names become that's amazing. Are you reading them today? I kind of occasionally glance at one on the yeah. shelves and it's not quite my thing anymore. It was m- massively influential on me at the time in terms of story and writing and prose style and illustration. I should explain that while I'm probably more a writer than illustrator these days, yeah. I started out purely as an illustrator and then did, did some of the comics work I did and then through that drifted into writing prose more or less instead of rather a bumbly kind of progress rather than a <laughs> purposeful, forceful kind of choice. That's encouraging to hear because I'm at the stage where I think old guidance at school is that it's going to be a very clear cut path and you have to have a final destination. And I'm not sure what that destination is or how smooth the path is going to be. So it's always reassuring to hear that people started out with one thing and drifted into another and there's yeah still alive it's absolutely different strokes for different folks uh, yeah some people do absolutely know and see that point in the far distance and yeah move towards it i'm more of a what can i see maybe it's through being short literally short sighted <laughs> <laughs> what can i see from here stumble yeah. towards that and then you see something different from there as well yeah i like that as a thought actually what is a book that you credit for shaping your way of thinking your style of writing, your general outlook in life. It's a long time since I read it. And I'm painfully aware that my wife can overhear me as I'm saying this. And I know it's a book <laughs> she hates. But The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. There's a slight squeal from the front room there. It's so playful and whimsical, both in terms of its language use and its ideas and the way it can go off on a tangent. Yeah. As with... Piper at the Gates of Dawn within Wind in the Willows. There's the odd chapter where the first time I read it, I thought, what's he doing now? It wasn't like your average way of writing, your average type of plot. 
to some extent, he's probably not that good at plot, really. Yeah. He kind of bumbles along. Why would you credit it for shaping your way of thinking or your style of writing? Well, make me think, oh, that's allowed. You can do things this way. There's a phrase about the spaceships that come to destroy Earth. It's something like hanging in the air in much the same way that bricks don't. That kind of wayward way of approaching things. Yeah. It's kind of op- opened up. Yeah. If you have children or children in your life, I would love to hear about your favorite books that you've read with kids. So I have a, a stepchild, yeah. Mila, who uh, is 19 now. So wow. I don't really get a, a chance to read to her anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but I did. Yeah. And Mila was four when I came into her life. Yeah. And not everything about that was the smoothest, but reading at bedtime was a bonding thing that really became very precious to me and a, a link. And naturally, I inflicted my love of comics. So amongst the things that went down pretty well were the Asterix books by Rennie Gussini and Albert Albert who <laughs> drew them. And then yeah. later on, there's some all by Uderzo after Cassini died. And then yeah. later, later still, other people have, have been carrying them on. Yeah. And they're not all great, but there's a, there's a solid run of at there's least really a dozen at the start that are just wonderful. Yeah. With with due credit, too, to the uh, English translators, because all the names of the characters have puns in them, both in the original French yeah. and in in the English translation, but quite often the English puns are better. There's gags in there that uh, were put in by Derek Hotry, Hockridge and Anthea Bell. And Anthea Bell in particular did lots of really quite erudite, highfalutin kind of translation work as well. But yeah. Will remain for most people, I think, best known for, I think, in no way thought it was beneath her to be yeah. really wonderful. Yeah. Hilarious asterisk books. I think they've become quite a key part of teaching French now because I remember reading them in English as a kid, but then through pretty much all of secondary school, we were being told to read them in French to practice. And it was actually really helpful because I remembered the story so well in English from when I was a kid that I could sort of translate some of the French. Yeah, I think as well, you'd have that head start of the heavy pictorial content doing a large part of the storytelling yeah and you've got a a bit of a head start on knowing what's going on it should be at least partly readable without any of the words anyway exactly what is the most recent book that you read the most recent one i finished was a book by ali smith called public library and other stories which i got from the library appropriately yeah there's a short book she wrote as well called Boy Meets Girl, and I very much enjoyed Boy Meets Girl, and I enjoyed Public Library and Other Stories, both short stories and reflections on the importance of libraries, which I am very much all for. Yeah, I've been volunteering at the library this summer with the children's reading program there, and it's really reinforced for me just how important public libraries are, because I think you go through stages with them. I was certainly there every day when I was a child. And then I'll sort of go there in exam season when I need a quiet place to study. But otherwise, I sort of forget about it. But seeing 
the same kids in there every day, you realize how important it is in their routine. And you see the same group of older people as well, um, yeah. reading their newspaper every morning. And it's a place for all ages, really. Important it really is. I think there's too many people who think they used to have importance and now they don't. Okay. There's a social importance to them and a political importance. My dad was always a member of the library. He was always an act- active user of the library. Right yeah. Very late in life. And so... Maybe part of it is I've inherited that from him. Having moved house recently, now we're in Suffolk. And it turns out that Suffolk library services have a considerably better range of graphic novels. In the quite small town I'm in, we do have a library, but there's about half a dozen graphic novels there. You can reserve anything from across Suffolk and in the I'm just working my way through most <laughs> I think they're starting to get a bit sick of me at the library. Oh, hey, him, him again. <laughs> Let me guess, he's here for a graphic novel. Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. I didn't know that. But I do think it's very cool that there's links between libraries. I've only learned about that recently. Do you tend to read works of writing that were written in a specific time period? As I say, I've read three Dickens. Yeah. And that's about the limit. I've read very little that's pre-20th century. I've probably read a few things from the, the golden age of the detective novel, which is, <laughs> is probably kind of into war mostly. Yeah. But in the days when I read a, a lot in my teens through my 20s, yeah. there's probably stuff that had recently come out mostly. Yeah. And not exploring backwards very far. Yeah. And I'm not prone to thinking, oh, it's shameful that I haven't read a particular book. I think it's just shameful that I haven't read more. There's so much stuff that I I want to read, but there's not a lot that I feel I ought to. I think that's a good mindset to have because sometimes it can be too overwhelming with the amount of books that are out there to read. So you've got to limit it down somehow. Do you have a favourite book that has been recommended to you? So there's a book called (laughs) Three Fevers. It's maybe my favourite book. Really? It's the best book I've ever read. Okay. But it's, it's kind of a favourite because of, of the various things it means to me. Yeah. It must have been when my older brother, Andy, was home for the weekend and then he was going back to college. Yeah. And he'd finished whatever he'd been reading while he'd been back over the weekend. Yeah. And he said to my dad, oh, I just I, I want a book to read on the coach going back to yeah. college. And my dad said, here, handed over this old penguin classic with the very plain type and the orange and white bands. Yeah. Um, I dare say, well, it's about this family of fishermen on the North Yorkshire coast and they do lots of fishing for different things. It's yeah. about their life doing this. And my brother went, have you got anything else? <laughs> <Because> <laughs> right. That sounds dull as anything. Yeah. Dad said, no, no, trust me, trust me. Yeah. And so he took it and he started reading it on the coach. And the way I remember him describing it was by the time he got to where he was going, yeah, he was so engrossed with it that he ran home so that he could carry on <laughs> once he got back. Well, um, My memory may have embellished <laughs> But that's what I remember. Anyway, my brother told me this story at some point. Yeah. He handed it to me and I went, yeah, yeah, sounds dead boring. Yeah. There was no coach journey involved, but I, I read it with similar um, enthusiasm when I did. Yeah. It's a while since I last reread it and I'm, I'm due a, another go at it to make sure that it is as good as I remember. Yeah. But it's not as fictional as it might be. 
So Leo yeah. Wamsley went and lived in a place called Robin Hood's Bay in Yorkshire, which happened to be a place that we'd had a couple of family holidays at, so we had a connection to as well. So yeah. had an interest there. And that is where the the story is set, yeah. albeit under another name. I think it's called Bramblewick in the book. And so Leo Wamsley went to Robin Hood's Bay and lived with a family of fishermen and went fishing with them. That's what the character in the story does. So he's kind of a newbie to the experience of fishing in a pretty small boat. Yeah. And this is, again, in the interwar years. Yeah. No great technology, no great kind of safety protocols. Because he'd had that direct experience of it, he could really write convincingly about it. And when he writes about being in a small fishing boat with a bunch of people and worrying about whether or not you're going to get home again because it's all got a bit rough and stormy and it's all a bit hairy. Yeah. He really takes you there. And it's yeah. very absorbing and exciting and the sort of thing you would want to run home from the bus station <laughs> to carry on reading. And so it's genuinely, I think, a very good read. I think it's, it's well written, but not ridiculously so. And because of the added layer of the family narrative of it, it's, it's a favourite of mine. I discovered a long time after I'd first read it that there'd been a, a film adaptation of it under another title. So it's set in Yorkshire, but it's acted in this film version, which is kind of quite charming in its way. Yeah. By actors who clearly mostly spoke like this in received pronunciation. Right. And they're trying to do Yorkshire accents. And it's right. just hilarious. <laughs> because I think the script must have been written in Yorkshire dialect. Right. I can't even begin to do it. Yeah. Some yeah. of it works out and some of it is just hilarious yeah. because of That's the voices. Pretty funny. Probably not what he ever imagined his book being depicted as. Do you have a favourite series that you've read? I want to see L.C. and Ethel read novels by... L.C. Tyler, and they're very lightweight. I think they're what they call nowadays cosy crime. And Ethelred is an author, and L.C. is his rather dismissive agent. Okay. And they end up, in an entirely unbelievable way, solving crimes. I believe the first one's called The Herring Seller's Apprentice. All of the titles have herring in there somewhere. Okay. And that first one was written as a one-off, and then it did well. So okay. he was kind of persuaded to extend it to a series. And I think there's probably about a dozen of them now, and I've, I've read at least half of those. And yeah. they barrel along in a very entertaining way, and, and you don't take them too seriously. But mostly they're hugely enjoyable, and they're good holiday reads. I think yeah. most of them I've probably read while on holiday. Yeah. Similarly, I've read a few of the Bryant and May Mysteries by Christopher Fowler, which are a bit more mystery-weighted than the Elsie and Ethel Reds. Yeah. still quite light in tone in many ways. There's a, there's a bit more grisliness in some of them. Okay. But, but they're, they're still mostly quite light-hearted. And in both cases, a lot of your enjoyment is coming from the characters rather than the mystery. I know this is probably the most difficult question, but everyone loves to ask a writer, what their favourite writer of all time is, or the most influential writer? I would say P.G. Woodhouse. I think some yeah. of what Douglas Adams had was very much influenced by P.G. Woodhouse. There's an incredible lightness to the prose and inventiveness and the breeziness to it that makes you think that he must have you know, dashed each book off in an afternoon. And also when you see how many books he wrote, you might think that. But apparently he, he wrote and rewrote and rewrote, certainly in my experience, a- achieving 
easily readable prose doesn't mean to say it was easily written. He could turn a humorous phrase like nobody's business. And again, the, the plots may be sometimes not necessarily very different from one book to another yeah. <laughs> um, and not necessarily the main reason you're there. Yeah. But, um, just glorious. And there's lots that, that I would aspire to and never, never expect to fully achieve. In yeah. What would you say your favorite book genre is? Crime fiction. I like yeah. a bit of hard boiled noir, which was a love of that from films first. And then, then some of the films were adapted from books by Raymond Chandler or by Dashiell Hammett. And so I read bits and pieces and read more. Yeah. Some of the more modern people in the same kind of ilk. Yeah. Like James Elroy. So quite a bit of that. Anything that's funny. Yeah. I like. And not quite anything in comic form, but plenty. Have you found any crimes in comic form? Oh, there's a brilliant Argentinian strip called Sinner, written by Carlos Sampaio. I like the earliest straight noir strips from that. It gets a bit weirder as it goes along. Yeah. But Jose Munoz is an incredible artist. It's all in black and white. Yeah. And almost semi-abstract at times. It's astonishing stuff. How many pages do you give a book if you don't like it? I would say normally a couple of chapters is easily enough to give it a fair go. I think for most people, as they get in the Kingsley Amos way, as they get older, they get less patient. I think my record, I didn't get to the end of the first page of The Da Vinci Code by Dan (laughs) Brown. He's not going to worry because I think he's done all right from the royalties. It, it, It may be that the plot and and everything is is absolutely brilliant, but the quality of the prose was abhorrent to me. Yeah. <laughs> it was just yep. all, yeah. it was painful. <laughs> there may have been a part of me that wanted not to like it because this was this thing that was so popular, and I'm so above all that. <laughs> but I had a life-changing moment not finishing a book, Okay, and that was Interview with the Vampire, Anne Rice, later filmed with Tom Cruise, I believe. It was huge when it came out. Okay. Um, very popular generally and recommended by a very good friend of mine whose opinion I, I took seriously and generally we had a lot, a lot of crossover. And I read it and I read it and I read it. And I think I was something like 16 pages from the end. And it suddenly occurred to me, you haven't enjoyed it so far, Dave. What are you expecting to happen <laughs> in these last few pages? And rather than thinking... Well, I've come this far, I might as well go to the end. Yeah. But no, it's not genuinely. You're going to... Yeah. <laughs> it may only be a few minutes. You're yeah. You're going to save a few minutes of your life and you can put it towards something you'll enjoy more. Yeah. I mean, I've got better things to do. Yeah. And after that, the gloves were off. As soon, <laughs> as soon I thought it wasn't worth my time. I've still got a pretty bad trait at the moment where I pretty much force myself to finish most books even if I don't like them from the start. And it's really such a bad thing, but I just persuade myself every time that it's going to get better as it goes along. But sometimes you just have a gut feeling from the beginning and you know it's not going to. There's the odd one that surprises you. Yeah. It's a thing I try to keep sight of as I'm writing. Yeah. Particularly when I'm rewriting thinking, yeah. Let's make sure those first couple of chapters won't be the only ones that get read by yeah. a bunch of people. Yeah. Is there such a thing as a book that's too long? It's really oh, yeah. And we should not say there's a number of pages that no book should go beyond. Yeah. But I think there's, there's a, a bit of a habit with some people towards bloat. 
Yeah. Same in films these days as well. Stuff where you think an extra re- rewrite could have knocked off 20% and it'd be better <laughs> for it. I've seen plenty of that. As we speak, dear yeah. listeners, my new book, Monster in the Woods, is going to be out in two days' time. The first draft of that was written beginning to end quite quickly by my standards, and I was expecting yeah. to. And then my publisher said the word count they were hoping for. I thought, ooh, that's really quite a lot that's got to go. Yeah. But I, I have quite a good and a long-standing relationship with my publisher and my editor, and I mostly trust their opinions. Overall, it's so much the better for it. Yeah. It's a breezy little read. Yeah. It doesn't mess about. It goes along a fair old clip. Yeah. And I think it's a practical thing for a lot of people, for a lot of writers. It's boring to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. They've only got a small advance and they can't spend too many years writing and rewriting. They need to get that book out and on to the next one. It's sad that there is that kind of practical economic consideration to take in, but it's the truth. Yeah. So stuff gets compromised and I, I fully understand it. I won an award once and because I won an award, I was a judge the following year. Oh, wow. And from my own experience as a slow reader, it was a slog to get through reading the long list in time. Yeah. And the chairperson of the judging panel shared my opinion that short books are good. She was very dismissive of stuff where she thought it hadn't been rewritten enough and the stuff that could have been taken out. So if you yeah. want to get on the side of a judging panel, yeah. write a short book. That's that is noted. my advice. That's noted. Do you have a favourite movie that's based on a book? Quite an interesting one is Strangers on a Train. Oh, okay. Uh, a Hitchcock movie, mostly from uh, Patricia Highsmith. I have read the book, I haven't seen the book. Yeah. But intriguingly, Hitchcock didn't like the ending of the book. And so the ending is taken from another book. I think it might be called The Moving Toy Shop. Okay. Set in a fun fair. Much more interesting visually than what happens in the book. Apparently, he's got just bought up the rights to that as well and kind of collaged it together. That's amazing. I've never heard of that before. Well, those are all of the questions. Thank you so much for speaking with me. You can find out more about Dave and his work on his website, daveshelton.com, and you can also find his books, including his new book, Monster in the Woods, as mentioned at the end of this episode on waterstones.com. Be sure to also check out my personal favorites, A Boy and a Bear in a Boat and 13 Chairs. Please don't forget to support your local bookshops when you can.